Welcome to the Blister Podcast, a program dedicated to interesting people, the great outdoors, and a bunch of other stuff we like. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check us out online at blisterreview.com. On our last Blister Podcast, we were talking with the founders of Venture Snowboards about building boards in the small mountain town of Silverton, Colorado. And this week, we've got a bit of a parallel story that, of course, has its own unique elements to it. Sago Skis was founded by two brothers, Tim and Peter Wells, and Sago is headquartered in the very small mountain town of Victor, Idaho. We've been getting here at Blister more and more questions about Sago Skis and requests to review them. So today, you're going to get the backstory of how these two brothers started a ski company, actually how they started two ski companies, and why they decided to set up in Victor to build skis. Then we go over some particular Sago skis, the snowblades they're producing, and why they have a ski called the Condor that has nothing on it other than an avocado. You can also check out now our first look at the Condor on our website, and if you become a Blister member, you can also read our flash review of the Condor and get our initial on-snow impressions of the ski. Just click on the navigation bar of the website where it says become a Blister member and you will be on your way. And now let's get to my conversation with Sago Ski's founders, Tim and Peter Wells. Well, let's get started with the obvious question. Um, you two happen to share the same last name. I take it that this isn't just a random coincidence, but that there is a familial tie here. We do have similar parents. <laughs> we, we share mothers and fathers. Wow, both. Okay. Yeah, both of them. <laughs> Uh, yeah, we're, we're brothers. Uh, I've known Tim my whole life. He's he's known me for most of his. And uh, we've been partners now for four seasons of Sago and um, three seasons previous of that with Deviation. We, we founded uh, Deviation Skis together as well uh, with a couple other partners. So we've been working together for almost seven years and uh, we have our trials and tribulations, but we get along pretty well and bring out the best and worst of each other. <laughs> but uh, we, we, we get along great and we, we work well together. Okay, so what is the age difference here? Uh, seven years. Seven years age difference, okay. So, and kind of with that age difference, I didn't, I moved out of the house before Peter was a teenager. So there was no built up hostility over the course of our childhood. So when, you know, Peter was a, uh, coming of age and moved out to Alta to be a ski bum, we started hanging out more and more. And I think we both realized like, Oh, you're pretty cool. Like maybe we can hang out more often. <laughs> and so it went. Okay. Um, and for sure there's a learning curve of working together, but we've, we've figured that out, dialed that in. And I think that's what my mother and Peter's would say she's most proud of is that we're, we're able to work together and get along. So this wasn't, um, this wasn't, uh, well, the, the math doesn't totally work here, but I'm envisioning like a 13 year old Tim and no, a uh, six, six year old Peter. Is that right? Did I just, yes. yeah. Yep. 13 year old Tim and six year old Peter weren't like, we should totally start a ski company someday. Not at all. I, I believe when Tim was 13, he took me skiing at our local hill. Uh, Greek Peak in Ithaca, New York, or outside of Ithaca, New York. And uh, I think he said, I, I, I skied too fast and I was too reckless and he wouldn't ski with me again. 
Wow. That was that, huh? <laughs> that was our six and 13 year old selves. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so when is, when is, you mentioned this kind of reunion at Alta, what year are we talking here? Uh, that was, uh, 2010. Okay. So pretty promptly then you guys yep. started talking about, so how did that, how did that come up? How does that become a conversation between two so, brothers? I, I was on a professional sabbatical. I was just hanging out and Peter called me one day. It's like, Hey, we should start a ski company. Like, yeah, sounds great. I've always wanted to start a company and I, I really enjoy skiing. What's, what do you think it's going to take? And Peter responded $5,000, a little depressed. We'll get going. It sounded like a pretty low bar, but like maybe if we had more money, it'd work better. Like, Oh yeah, totally. Um, so we got to writing a business plan, raised some money and kind of rounded out the team. And that was the founding of deviation skis and snowboards. Mm -hmm. So we all moved out to Portland, Oregon, um, for a handful of reasons that we don't need to get into. Um, but that's where we started and kind of hit the ground running. None of us had extensive experiences making skis or snowboards. Um, but kind of learning curve, hired a couple consultants, uh, and got going. But really, I guess backing up, I missed a, a key part. Um, the, I think the reason why we originally got together was a sustainable lifestyle for each of us, um, both in a, diff a different capacity, um, but being satisfied with what we do work and personal um, and bringing that together. Uh, me coming from a business background and working in finance, I wasn't stoked with what I was doing. And Peter was super happy with what he was doing. But being a ski bum has a limited shelf life before it's not quite the dream anymore. Um, so us being able to come together and, and figure out a sustainable life path forward. Um, and that was why we started Deviation and ultimately Sago. Yeah. So Peter, I mean, you could have contacted Tim or said to Tim, let's start an outerwear company, you know, or let's start sure. some, any number. Why, why building skis? Uh, I've always liked working with my hands. I, th I think I have a critical eye for design. Uh, I definitely have lots of opinions and I've always owned lots of skis. Um, always love skiing lots of different skis. I'm always demoing and have an opinion on just about everything out there. Uh, and felt like I can fit people pretty well. I've worked in ski shops and I'm always great at fitting someone into a ski. I can read someone's personality, what they're telling me, what they think are truths and they're not telling the truth to me about how they actually ski, whether it's better or worse or what they're actually on piece off piece, what it is and, uh, fitting someone into a ski. And, and that's a, that's a skill of mine. And that lends itself to designing skis. Cause not just am I fitting someone into whether whatever Rossi vocal Nordica it is, it's a, I'm designing a ski to fit a certain type of person. So I've got a skill in that. And, you know, I was living and working at the gold miners daughter at Alta mm -hmm. and really wanted to stay in the industry and, and follow something I was more passionate about mentally um, and use my brain a little more 
um, than just serving tables or managing the restaurant there. And, uh, that's had to come up with some ideas of how to, how to do it. And there are several ideas. Do you become a professional skier? That seemed kind of hard and not a great idea. Um, other bad ideas, but, uh, this one, this idea is we found a team in money and that doesn't always happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a cool enough idea that interested other people, other engineers, folks that had built skis previously at Burton and Blue House. Um, it, it interested enough people and it was a cool enough idea that we were able to gather that team in money. I'm super curious to hear, first of all, in, in starting Deviation, um, so you get there and did that turn out to be much harder than you anticipated, easier than, in, than you anticipated, or about what you had actually anticipated? Uh, it, it, it was hard. Uh, it, it, we definitely thought we were going to get off the ground faster than we were. We didn't quite have the vision for the industry like we thought we did. Um, deviation, I mean, they're still around and they still make great skis. Uh, it's all custom. That wasn't the original business model that we had all really talked about. And, uh, that's where deviation pivoted. And that wasn't our pivot that Tim and I were into. We felt like we had a pretty good grasp on the industry on how to sell wholesale, how to do production, um, and how to build a high quality ski and to build build an individual high quality ski, you need to make it repeatable and do it over and over and over. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of where we landed on that. But it, it was a hard road with deviation for sure. And, and uh, definitely went through some of, of an ugly divorce with the other partners. Hmm. And okay. we, at, at deviation, we tried to do everything. We made skis, snowboards, stock product and custom. Cause we thought, you know, we're making the, a bigger market, but it's also hard to define your product when you're doing that. Um, and that's something we ran into. Um, we needed, we needed focus and that's thing we've really, uh, pun intended focused on at Sago is honing that message. We very much realized we are a, a lifestyle brand, not just a hard goods product. It's not a commodity. And, garnering attention from customers is not always easy. Mm-hmm. Um, but that focus is really important in defining um, our mission statement and how we relate to customers and how customers relate to us. Can you say more about that? Because I think this is a massive question. I mean, literally for anybody starting a company, but keeping it kind of in, say, the ski and snowboard industry, how to determine when to try to spread your wings a bit and when getting involved in too many areas can be, I mean, can result in kind of a a death move, right? Mm -hmm. You're exactly right in kind of the separation and effectively we're two separate businesses. We're a manufacturer Mm -hmm. and, and a ski brand. We just happen to own both of them and they're very much interconnected. Um, But making, Making a good product isn't enough. Um, we, we're, we're a younger brand. We haven't been around. We don't have that trust that uh, a Stokely or a Solomon or a Rossi or K2 has. Um, and that's what bringing in um, 
our values and, and sharing them with, with our customers is very important. I think we've been able to progress much quicker in the quality and ride of our ski because we have our own facility and we can prototype very quickly and progress where if we were getting our skis made out of house, you know, there's timelines and you have to commit six, eight, 12 months in advance with what the product's going to be. And even that prototyping process could be once every four to eight weeks instead of every day. Um, so I think the having our manufacturing in-house is very important to us to be able to touch and feel each step um, has allowed us to progress um, through the industry with the quality of product. And I think that's reflected in um, one, some of the awards we've won, but also just the brand acceptance, the, the growth of Sago and um, it, with us being compared to other products. And that's one of the reasons we do demo days because we think we make a great product and people really enjoy it. And for me, that's the most satisfying thing of anything I do daily is to see someone skiing back to the tent with a huge smile on their face because you know they've just had a great time. Um, and that's amazingly satisfying. And we facilitated that. I want to get to the start of Sago and, and how this did come about. So you guys were in Portland and mm -hmm. did you, was it kind of Portland to uh, the Tetons or did, was there some time off in between? Did you, did you go to, you know, the Bahamas for two weeks and kind of think about the next move? Like how, how soon or how did you make that jump from deviation to Sago? Extraordinarily fast. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, kind of as we were, we knew we were moving on from deviation. We were, uh, it, it just trying to make the plan and one, try to leave the company in a amicable way and figure out how all that worked. Um, and knowing that we had something, we, we had the idea, we had the vision, we have the know-how, we just had to execute on it. And, uh, we need to have less partners to do that. And, uh, I'd say we left deviation in August of, uh, what was that? 2014 maybe. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I had, we had a whole factory set up and skis on people's feet by November. Wait a second. Say that again. Left in August and yep. the factory was set up in November. It was like 5,000 feet of factory with lots of tuning, uh, you know, we had four days running then at CNC, big setup, um, fully outfitted electrical on everything, uh, producing skis in November. Wow. Not, not many at that point, but, mm -hmm. but they were happening. <laughs> yep. And we ended up in the Tetons, you know, with, as Peter had said, and then we knew we were going to be moving on and, we visited the Tetons really as due diligence of, you know, we have the opportunity to do this again. We want to, we feel like we've learned a lot of the last couple of years, um, both positive and negative. Uh, we have the opportunity to start a new company, make different mistakes, hopefully. Mm -hmm. And we, yeah, we came out to the Tetons really as due diligence, pretty confident that we're going to say no, mm -hmm. but you know, needed to visit and, we really felt the energy of the valley. And at that time, you know, rent was pretty darn affordable. Labor was cheaper than it is now. 
Um, so all the business aspects aligned. There was a great factory space available. And, but o- overall, it was the energy and vibe of the community um, that we wanted to be a part of. When we first visited, we, we met with the mayor of Victor. Mm-hmm. We met with the mayor of Driggs. And we met with the owner of Targi. <laughs> and then there's a factory space that was like the exact number of square feet we needed with a showroom already built in. It was like kind of looked at each other and was like, well, <laughs> I think that's it. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, guess we're not going to the Bahamas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. We got to just jump in and get started. Yep. Okay. And the factory is technically located in, I, I guess I'm not sure if it's Victor or Driggs or where are you it's guys? In Victor. You are in Victor. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Um, why the name Sago? Uh, short, sharp, and memorable. It's really easy to come up with a poor name. Uh, that's the ultimate takeaway. Uh, the Sago lily does grow. It's one of the first lilies and flowers to come up through the snow in the spring. Um, in hard times, it's been said that Mormon pioneers and American Indians would eat the roots for sustenance. Um, but it's a good looking lily. And it's cool. You know, when you're touring in the spring, there's like a week or two, especially in Grand Teton Park, um, where you're touring and, and there's flowers, there's wildflowers growing through snowfields that really only lasts a week or two. And it's a cool site. Those are Segos. So let's talk about this factory in Victor and mm-hmm. let's talk about what you guys are actually doing and, and exactly what you are building in that factory, right? And we've, we've talked about this a little bit uh, on some previous podcasts, but, you know, this quote-unquote indie moniker, this, there's a whole lot of stuff that happens and sort of doesn't happen under that name, mm-hmm. right? And you've got some companies that are building their own skis, some companies who are not, some companies who are doing part of the building. Talk to talk to me about uh, exactly what you guys, how much you're manufacturing in Victor. So going into getting our factory outfitted when we moved here, um, one of the, or the primary goal was to overinvest in the factory. So we were able to put on you know, great construction, uncompromised materials, and a really, really quality tune on the ski. And that tune is going to be the first thing you notice when you get on a pair of any skis, um, good, bad, or indifferent. And we knew that as a small company with that indie moniker, um, just because something's made by hand does not mean it's good. But we we needed to prove ourselves through the quality, um, not just talking points. Um, so we overinvested in our factory initially for that reason that we we knew we were going to have to be competing with with the big boys and girls in the industry, mm-hmm. and that construction and finish quality was really important. Um, companies big and small don't always put a good tune on skis. Big companies because you know they rush through the process, and small companies because they haven't always made that investment. I mean, and that's not across the board. Um, there's plenty of companies that can and do put good tunes. It's just not always consistent. Um, but that was paramount for us to put out a quality product that we believed in that was consistent. Um, cause I think that's one thing you hear from consumers and especially shop buyers about a smaller ski company or snowboard company that, that construction finish quality is not always consistent. Um, you know, there's a big difference between 
uh, making a meal for you and your wife, you and a handful of friends, or catering an event. Mm-hmm. And we're in the business of catering, um, and we wanted to be able to scale, and that's um, where we put a lot of our resources initially was to building a factory that we could scale uh, and make a consistent, um, repeatable, great ski. Peter? Yeah, so the factory is about 5,500 square feet and hopefully growing soon. Hopefully we're expanding it that a bit. Um, we run four bays most days. We have six bays set up, but we're mostly just running four bays. Um, as Tim said, great tuning equipment, uh, full CNC. We've recently made moves on purchasing some uh, equipment that used to be making all of K2's cores out from Bastion Island. Hopefully move that in-house. Our cores, we kind of split. Some of them get made out of house. We make some in-house. Um, just we don't have a full, full wood shop, but uh, that will be coming in-house shortly. Hmm. And big, big machines, big presses. We've been pretty uh, opportunistic as ski companies or snowboard companies go by the wayside. Um, as they get purchased by other companies and liquidate, we come in and purchase equipment for pennies on the dollar. And uh, we have a lot of, we have equipment from Armada and Block Diamond, a couple other companies that, that we're very fortunate to pick up what they've invested in. Talk about the advantages of building skis in Victor and running a company out of Victor and then talk about some of the challenges. Well, first and foremost, uh, as we said originally, it is a lifestyle brand and it's about a sustainable lifestyle, not and lifestyle doesn't always have to make sense. It doesn't always have to be rational. Um, but we like skiing and the Tetons happen to be great skiing. Victor is kind of a sleepy community on the other side of the pass from Jackson. Uh, we can bop up to the pass and be skiing in a couple minutes. We can sled ski out of the back door of the factory. Uh, so as far as why we're here, it's, it's lifestyle. And, and that, that goes into the brand vision as well. I think people see that, oh, the ski's being made in the Tetons. Like We have a big mountain laboratory at our disposal. You know, if I'm looking to make backcountry skis or skis great for couloirs or big powder skis or just skis for groomers, like I, I have everything right here to test and I have everything here to enjoy as well. Mm-hmm. So that's first and foremost, like what Victor has to offer. Great community, really nice support from the community. Um, great place to live. Challenges. Yeah. Some challenges. <laughs> You know, we definitely are out here in the sticks <laughs> and shipping is just a nightmare. Like getting trucks in here, uh, moving equipment in the snow, uh, just like having resources of what a city has, you know, like, like originally, like we said, we had to overinvest in some of our equipment because there isn't somebody down the road who can manufacture something for us. There isn't a guy with a big CNC you know, a mile away that we can use. Uh, we have to have it all here. We have to be self-sufficient. We have to be sustainable in our, in our own means because we just don't have those resources. Um, you know, trucking fans over passes, any way to get into Teton Valley in the winter, it's terrible driving. So trucks aren't allowed on the passes. So mm-hmm. 
it often costs more money to get things here um, and more money to send things out. Uh, that is definitely a pain in the butt. Um, but that said, we're relatively centrally located, even though it doesn't seem that way. You know, Jackson's a huge market. Salt Lake's only four hours away. Yep. Denver's not that far. We're close to Montana and Canada. Um, Northwest and, and California are a drive, but you know, we're, we're halfway between there and Denver. So, uh, we're able to actually reach quite a bit of places. We just have to put up with some snowy driving to get there. And kind of on the challenge, expanding on the challenges through real estate, um, there's not a whole lot of vacant, uh, industrial space. So, you know, we're looking to expand that takes more planning. We can't just jump down the street to the next industrial park. Um, and labor, it's a tight labor market. We've been very fortunate with the employees we've hired that, you know, kind of have bought into our vision and are passionate about the industry. Um, but as we continue to grow and add more, uh, more heads, that is, is an issue that again, just with, it just takes more planning and there's not hundreds of people as if we're in Salt Lake that are looking for a job. And so we just have to be better at planning. Um, but I think the benefits far outweigh um, the challenges as, as Peter's saying about kind of big mountain laboratory and the lifestyle um, we've been able to, to craft in the Tetons. Each summer trying to find production staff because that's when we're making the most skis. Uh, last summer, I mean, one in interviews when I'm hiring people, it's, do you, do you have a place to live? Mm-hmm. Like, are you going to be able to find a place to live? Mm-hmm. And if they don't know, they're probably not going to end up living here because they haven't figured that out already. And that, that's really hard here. Housing, there's not much housing. There's not a lot of housing stock. So there's not places for employees to live. So a lot of times college kids want to come out, move out here and, and build skis for the summer. Um, and they end up just camping outside, which is great. Summers here are awesome. But, uh, you know, I end up, I have an extra room in my house. I end up housing people for months at a time. Tim does the same. I have a little pop-up camper that I had an employee live in last year. <laughs> uh, you know, it's knowing the forest service and that they know where our employees are camping through the whole valley <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, lending showers out when they're needed. Hmm. So, uh, that's definitely a challenge. I'm going to bounce back again, kind of more to the back to the start of Sago. Mm-hmm. Um, again, coming off uh, coming off the heels of working with a different company, uh, Tim, you spoke with already about this notion of not trying to do everything right with with Sago at the start. But I'm curious to hear whether there were sort of one or two really strong principles that you said, okay, we've just learned some stuff on this previous uh, endeavor. We now feel extremely strongly that, you know, we have to go forward kind of in this new venture with these kind of one, two, or three principles. Was was there anything like that? Or, or with Sego, did you maybe start with some of those things and then get in it, you know, a year in and you're like, wow, we're pivoting around quite a bit. How did that go for you guys? I'd say there, there were a couple of guiding principles. Uh, one we touched on with that construction of finish quality. That was the number one, uh, great product. 
that we could produce consistently at a price that, that made sense. Um, two, it was, it would, it's just Peter and myself at initially and being able to make decisions, be on the same page, move forward and execute in our vision. Uh, also being wholesale so on the, that's more production side, um, on the sales and marketing side, uh, being wholesale driven. So we still sell direct. Um, but our avenue for growth was going to be through opening retailers. Um, cause again, you're not dealing with a rational consumer, uh, that likes to slide down snow. It all makes sense to us. Um, but if you kind of break that down, it's choice and product and people still like to touch and feel. It's tough to touch and feel on the internet if you don't have the brand awareness. Um, so getting in shops, it's like doing the magazine reviews, um, you know, social media, you kind of have to do it all. You can't just pick one avenue. Um, so quality, consistency, um, wholesale driven, and that was, and, and very much being aware that we were a lifestyle brand, not just a hard goods uh, manufacturer. Um, were kind of the three guiding principles um, that allowed us to look forward to, and and that was really the, the foundation of Sega Skika. And it sounds like, I mean, you mentioned early on um, talking about demo days, and that that was one of your kind of favorite parts of doing this job. And uh, but it also sounds like you are, in fact, you guys are doing a pretty solid amount of demo days. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. We're, I think the number is 60. It might actually be a few more. I think, yeah, it's closer to 65. Call it 60 plus demo days this season, um, which involves a lot of travel, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of demo skis, and a lot of human resources to pull off, and a pretty large insurance policy, hmm. which all mountains require. Um, but we've found that that's creating a genuine connection with our customer. Um, in markets where we have wholesale partners, helps them sell product. In new markets, it's introduction. Um, but it's creating those touches um, and a brand awareness for people that will ultimately be in the market for skis in the future, whether it's two weeks, six months, a year, two years. Um, we found that unbelievably successful um, and going against the grain a little bit of the industry and um, showing how, how we're different. And I, and I think that comes down to a genuine connection with, again, coming back to that sustainable lifestyle and the, the way we kind of live our brand. Uh, people get it. Like you're in the Tetons, close to snow, like that sounds awesome. And people can, can relate to that. Um, also with being located in a resort area, you know, equal distance from Grand Targhean and Jackson Hole Mountain Resort, Yep. Um, people are able to learn about Sago and then take that message home and spread it. Um, where, as you know, when we were in Portland, it was more of an insular community um, and it was harder to get that message out outside of our locals. Um, so it's been nice that people can learn about Sago, get stoked, get on a pair of skis, and then take that message home and, and spread the good word. Hmm. Uh, or you can find us traveling. We have a school bus that we travel around in, uh, outfit to sleep four or five people. It's got a wood stove and racks, racks and racks of skis, sometimes up to 50 skis in there. And, uh, yeah, traveling around Colorado or the Northwest 
in that and demoing skis out. We'll be at Alta this weekend with with the bus. Hmm, nice. We should while still in, while doing. We're also doing a demo at Le Grave in is that France. Wow. Right. Same weekend. So. <laughs> yeah, wow. Al- Alta and Le Grave. That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. That's the brand vision there. <laughs> we we definitely. Uh, I'm going to request a couple of pictures of the bus. They those should go in the. Uh, the show notes to this to this episode, sure. if if people want to check those out. Um, but yeah, it, it it is a it is a pretty sweet bus. Um, <laughs> uh, as as Peter and I both say, it, it drives better than our our cars. Yeah, <laughs> drives great. Drives nice and true. Stops out at sixty five. Uh huh. Just cruise along. Um, it's it's really fun to drive, and the reaction you get from people both driving, but also being parked. Um, people just want to get on the bus and do without asking, which is taking what we're getting used to. Not too many vehicles would be just like, oh, that's super cool. Let me get in. But uh, people feel empowered to just get in and, and learn about the bus and what we do, hmm. which is, has been really great. I want to ask you guys about the Sago ski lineup here in a minute. But before we get there, I want to ask about snowboards and what is happening or not happening uh, on that front. So you'll, you'll never see a, a Sago snowboard. Um, but as we kind of touched on earlier with the separation between the brand and manufacturing facility, um, we are currently prototyping with a couple small snowboard startups that have reached out to us and we're a small nimble company and, and able to allow them to prototype and hopefully they'll grow through us with a growing product line. Um, I won't touch on the names now, but if the factory is running, you know, we're making money, there's a good amount of overhead um, and fixed costs associated with running your own factory. And that helps defray the costs. Um, but also I think helps separate us and through the messaging of we are, we want to be, and the goal is to be a premier manu- premier North American manufacturer and I think that helps with scale and making both skis and snowboards. Uh, they're very similar. And we have the ability and opportunity to move forward with some OEM contracts. And we're very much looking forward to building snowboards. Uh, just won't say Sego on them. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, then let's talk Sego skis. Um, for those who aren't acquainted, let's. I kind of just want to orient a little bit about the kinds of mm-hmm. stuff you guys are building and, and what you're up to. What are your, say, top two best sellers in the lineup? Uh, this year, the, the Cleaver 102. Uh, it's a 102 underfoot ski, uh, quite a bit of rocker in the nose, a little bit of camber, a uh, sheet of metal in it. Uh, it's really easy to ski, but it skis also very aggressively. It has a pretty low, low end. Like you can get on it and be a intermediate skier, but you put your, your best pro skiers on it and, and it's, it's all there. Uh, so it also has a really high top end that sold fantastically this year. Um, it's what I ski on just about every day hmm. and, uh, yeah, great ski cleaver one Oh two. And then the s- second to that would be, I guess either the UP pro One Ten or the UP pro 92, which are, or Lindsay Dyer Pro Models. Mm-hmm. Um, they're all mountain and big mountain women's skis, kind of more traditional mustache rocker, 
not quite uh, symmetrical, but still a twin tip. And uh, they're just good all around skis. And Lindsay Dyer has really helped push those. And, and uh, she's really helped us in the growth um, on our women's side by a lot. And, and on our men's side for that matter as well. Hmm. But those are the two best, two, no, I shouldn't say two best. Those are our most selling models this year. Okay. Yeah. That's actually pretty cool. And I would assume probably a bit unique to have women's models in among the best sellers for, for yep. indie, for indie companies. Totally. We have a full women's line, which is quite unique for a indie brand. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is there? Five models in it? In our women's line? We have powder skis, groomer skis, uh, all, all mountain, big mountain and touring in our women's line. And they all sell pretty well. Uh, we're closer to a 50, 50 split on men's and women's, uh, and in the industry, like on larger brands, it's closer to that, like 35, 65, maybe 40, 60 at best. Um, and and yeah, like I said, Lindsay Dyer has really helped with that. Her her name's gone a long way and being able to have, uh, someone who we trust being able to prototype and help us test skis. Mm -hmm. And she does all the graphics for them. Uh, that's been huge. She lives within maybe 600 yards or less of the factory. <laughs> so that's convenient. That is convenient. Uh, and yeah, she's, she's been huge on getting that line off the ground. And uh, we like making women's skis. We, we just like people having fun on skis. It doesn't matter if it's a men's ski or a women's ski. Uh, they're made with the same materials, uh, often just a slightly different design. And they're not dumbed down by any means. And for the most part, they're all the same price point. It's also relatively unique. Most women's skis are a cheaper price point. Mm-hmm. Our, all of ours are the exact same cost. Because mm-hmm. uh, it costs us the same amount. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and believing in the quality yeah. of the product. Yeah. Because not dumbing it down. Um, there are some terms out there of how to classify women's skis. And that's that wasn't what we wanted to do. We wanted to make a quality women's ski and not just a shorter size of a men's ski outside of the backcountry ski. There's not a corresponding men's model. Um, so it's a truly unique line for women, not just, Hey, we made this men's ski. Let's make it smaller. Um, which again, I think separates us from a lot of companies, both big and small, but on the boutique indie side, um, having a full product line of women's skis, higher price point, because um, we believe in the quality of the product. And, and that's that surprised a handful of retailers that uh, have purchased our women's skis. And like, you know, they believed in us and were giving us a chance. And, you know, seeing them at OR this year, like, you know, I didn't actually think we were going to be able to sell women's skis at that price point. But we have. And our margins are great. It's working. Like, I'm glad you guys believe that that, that market exists. And... And it does. Peter, I'm curious, um, what ski or skis are you most proud of? And that Uh, might be because you think the design is just super, super dialed, or it's just a unique thing, or there's some other random reason. But as the builder. You you know, there's a couple skis I'm I'm super proud of. Um, I'm proud of the Cleaver. Uh, Probably more proud of next year's ski, the Cleaver 110, was just bigger, more fun version. 
but but honestly, I'm probably most proud of literally our first design at Sego, like first model we went through prototyping and went into production, which was called the Prospect 110, and and it's different than it is now. Uh, it never sold well. Uh, you put someone on a demo of it, they love it. It wasn't super sexy design by any means, just did everything really, really well. And uh, I've found that we can sell uh, niche skis better than we can sell great quiver killer skis. And uh, I'm super proud of that ski. I, I know that's Tim's personal ski. Now, still four seasons later, hmm. he's on the same pair of old prospects. So that's what he likes. Why don't um, you? Why don't you build your brother a new pair of skis? He digs. I I threatened to sell him this weekend. He's not <laughs> happy about it. I, our head sales guy Alex is like, "Hey, do you want to sell your prospects?" I was like, "No." <laughs> and then Peter walked in. He's like, "We're selling your prospects. Make any new skis." <laughs> so so I might have to let them go. Unfortunately. <laughs> wow. Okay. Interesting. Um, yeah. Okay. But but I'm proud of that ski. That that was a great ski and. And when there's a couple laying around, when I get back on pair, it's, uh, I always fall back in love with that ski. Huh. That's, that's the one. I'm just curious now. Like, I don't mean to talk about too long about skis that don't exist anymore, but uh, <laughs> tell me a little bit about this ski. How, how wide? What, what about uh, this it, thing? It's, it's 110 underfoot, has a good amount of rocker in the tip. It's got a stiff camber, a turned up but non-symmetrical tail, uh, maybe like a 24 and a half meter radius at 187. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it makes big turns, but it has enough rocker that you can always put it sideways. It's just, it, it's easy to turn, but goes straight very well. Okay. Uh, always stable. And it's hard to get a bad review on it. Hmm. But we sell powder skis, full on powder skis better than we sell that. We sell groomer skis or like a touring ski better than that. People are oftentimes when people are buying a Sago, it's a, a very, a niche ski oftentimes. Mm-hmm. And then, and then our, like a, the best sellers, like being one or two underfoot, that's a great underfoot size that we can have a more universal ski. 110 was a little big for a universal ski. I think is what it came down to. But uh, uh, in time, I, I think that ski will come back. I mean, now it almost just sounds, I feel like you're depriving us. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's the one thing that we've kind of learning on the ground, what, you know, what we think will sell, what sells, what people look to us for. Um, I think, you know, we have 20 models for next year and they're all, they have a purpose but they're pretty well rounded where they, you know, they're not just a one trick pony outside of a, a few skis being touring, um, you know, our full on powder ski, which is a wizard, which is a swallowtail that's 134 foot, um, or ski blades or ski blades. So there's a couple models that, you know, have a very limited purpose, but very good at said use. Um, and how, you know, the first year I, I think Peter can expand on this, but, the first year we overbuilt our skis because we knew the early adopters are going to be really good skiers hmm. and we want to be known for making a burly ski. And then as we've grown, product lines expanded, um, we've toned that back a touch. 
still make a very versatile ski that, like Peter said, kind of from that intermediate to expert range that both individuals can use that product or the same individual on the day, um, being fresh and ripping hard in the morning and, you know, slowing down after lunch, after a burger and a beer and being able to not ski so hard, but still having fun on the same ski. Um, so just under, yeah, coming back to understanding what our customers want from us. Mm -hmm. Um, and not just what our athletes want from us. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes their skis are slightly different. Yep. Okay. So, yeah. Talk to me a little bit about the eighteen nineteen lineup. What? Where is the difference between you know the seventeen eighteen line and the eighteen nineteen? Sure. A, cu- a couple of skis I'm really excited for, as I mentioned, the the Cleaver one ten. Yep. It's it's the exact same shape as Cleaver one hundred two. Like that's a tried and true model. It, it skis fantastically. Uh, we made it fatter and it, it's, it's more fun cause I, I like fatter skis. Uh, it's really stable. It's hard to get bad reviews on it. Really, really fun. I'm really excited for that. I, I hope it sells well cause it, it's a great ski. Mm-hmm. Um, a pretty unique ski we have coming out next year is called the Condor. Um, it's really a brainchild of one of our athletes, Dorian Densmore. Uh, it's a relatively lightweight, not crazy lightweight by any means, uh, but relatively light backcountry ski that is meant for skiing, you know, uh, tight couloirs. Maybe they're a closeout line. It's really an athlete couloir ski. It's got a lot of camber. Uh, it's a really long turning radius, like a 26 or so meter turn radius at a 187. Um, it's an all black ski with a little hand drawn avocado <laughs> on the top right corner. And it, it's a funky ski and it, it's definitely not for everyone, but, uh, it does have metal in it. It does have balsa wood in it. Uh, most of the core is still poplar. Uh, it's still a really durable sidewall base and edge. Uh, really the vision was this is a Argentina side country ski and super, super niche, but I, but I think people will like it. Uh, it, I'm excited about it. I tour on it. It's powerful. It feels light on the way up and really powerful on the way down. But if you're not skiing it, it, it can ski you. Cause mm-hmm. I, th- I think I just got used to skiing skis, a lot of rocker and it's got a lot of camber. Mm-hmm. I love the specificity. It's an Argentinian side country ski. (laughs) (laughs) With the crossover in the Tetons in Europe. (laughs) Wow, that's fantastic. Uh, That's good. That's what it was designed for. Okay. It's Kular ski. Kular ski. If you can ski a fully cambered ski or mostly cambered ski, then you're going to have a great time on it. Uh, It comes alive at speed, which is great. You just don't get that in backcountry skis. Most backcountry skis start getting scary at speed. Yes. Uh, yes. This ski comes alive at speed. Okay. Yeah. And <clears throat> I should say, I mean, we, uh, we are actually going to start putting time on that ski soon, but I have to confess when, when, uh, when that ski arrived and it's this black ski with a damn <laughs> avocado on it and it's called the condor, you definitely <laughs> won the award for like the WTF award uh, at, at, at Blister headquarters because we're like this, uh, we can't connect the dots here. Uh, I, I'd say the dots are hard to connect. Okay. Like I said, brainchild of Dorian Densmore. 
Uh-huh. I'll give him some credit. He, he's, he took last summer, oh, five or seven of them down to Argentina with him. Kind of like hand them out to the friends and athletes down there. And, and we're trying to figure out what to do for the graphic. Like, Dorian, what do you want to do? He's like, all black with an avocado. <laughs> like, great. Sounds good. Like, do that. And then he's like, what, what the hell? Like, you actually did that? I was like, yeah, that's what you asked for. <laughs> and then, like, you know, we're, we're on a Skype call. He's in Argentina. And, and like, well, what, what's the name of it? Like, what are we calling this thing? He's like, if I were to pick one name, it'd be the Condor. <laughs> like, all right. He's like, that's it. Because <laughs> there, there would have been, looking at the ski, there's one obvious name for that ski. Uh, <laughs> if you're looking at the top sheet. Uh, so, uh, and Condor is not that name. It's so. not one of them. No. Nope. Wow. I, suddenly, I feel like I know who I need to get on the podcast just to have a yeah, really yeah, weird yeah, conversation. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, who knows where that one's going to go. Yeah. So uh, did you guys yeah. bother to ask why Condor? Did you bother to ask why? Or is it just with, with Dorian? You're uh, like, if, okay. If I guess there's probably some birds flying over his head at the time. <laughs> <laughs> he's an he's a in the moment kind of a guy. Yeah, yeah. Very, very in the moment. And full trust. And kind of... Oftentimes I let the athletes make important decisions and let them have their way. And, uh, if it doesn't work, then we tweak it the next year. But, uh, I often allow them to have their creative freedom as I, as I enjoy having my creative freedom. And that's part of our relationship with them. So, uh, sometimes it ends up in a pretty funky thing that I had a lot of fun designing, but, uh, and I spent a, incredible amount of time hand drawing the avocado didn't seem like it should i'm not great at drawing but it's a pretty good avocado uh we totally recognized it to be an avocado so yeah <laughs> mission accomplished peter yeah so so uh yeah pretty random ski but but the construction's pretty cool in it and it, it skis great at speed and and yeah you guys have it there so it's not that light but it's by no means a heavy ski it's lighter than most anything you're going to take up a lift Mm-hmm. Uh, but heavier than just about every backcountry ski out there. But if you're skiing a line of consequence, you yep. want to be confident underfoot. And that's the purpose of the ski. Turns out. <clears throat> and as we yep. just keep seeing this race, it feels like to lighten everything up. It, mm-hmm. it actually, as a reviewer, it's kind of gets a bit scarier and scarier. Yeah. Because we're supposed to go ski the same lines that, you know, we were six or seven years ago on stuff that now weighs way less than what sort of qualified as a reasonable weight for a touring ski not very long ago. Um, totally. So. And, and we, make a, we make a lightweight ski, but it's just it, – and it skis great. It's called the Wave BC. Like, it skis great, but, but it's not meant for steeps that are icy – like, you know, light skis just chatter, uh, regardless of the materials. You just don't have enough mass on your foot to have power. Hmm. And if you, need, if you need to have some grip above a cliff band or in a couloir, then you better have some mass and you better have some camber and some edge hold. Well, hey, guys, I should let you get going. Um, what's the best question that I haven't asked you? Uh, you haven't touched on our snowblades at all. Um, we will have a production snowblade next year. 
This is, you don't even know. Like, this has become such a thing. Like, first of all, we were just, you know, skiing Taos with a bunch of our reviewers. And, like, I was actually outnumbered at one point because I was, like, the only one on, like, real skis. And, um... And then we're just getting more emails about this. And so, dear Lord, like this, there is this incredible internal pressure uh, for us to like actually start doing Snowblade reviews. And so, <laughs> damn it, this, you aren't helping me here <laughs> with, with this introduction. So anyway, say more. Well, you know, we're, I'd say we're, it's on trend this year. We've been making Snowblades for a couple of years now, but we've never actually put them out for sale. Okay. Uh, we've, we've had a Snowblade athlete for the last three seasons. That's <laughs> Okay. Uh, right. Winner of the payment Schlonky last year. Uh-huh. Yeah. Accomplishment. We've got the that golden is, that's a here. That's like the Olympic, that's like Olympic gold equivalent. I mean, oh, yeah. Yeah. But, uh, you know, t- Tim and I, we were, we were born and raised snowbladers. Uh, I can remember very vividly. I was young. Tim was probably 15 or 16. Uh, like family, we all got snowblades for Christmas. Sister got snowblades. Tim got snowblades. I got snowblades. The snowblade Christmas <laughs> back in the nineties. And my our mom, who my mom taught me to ski, uh, she has really bad knees, and she gave up skiing. But she's a snowblader, mm-hmm. and so she taught me how to snowblade. Uh, really, when I was learning to ski, and uh, it's it's been in our blood, and we we've been doing it for a while, and we've always made them. But but it is on trend this year. But we make a our most popular blade that we make is a one one ten. Mm-hmm. One ten long, one ten underfoot. It's got a swallowtail, fully rockered. Um, <laughs> full sidewall. Full full, full yeah, si- full UW sidewall. Uh, it, it's a part of our wizard line. We have the wizard, which is a one thirty four underfoot powder ski that comes in one length for next year, which is two hundred, and then the second length that comes in is one ten. Or one hundred, rather. <laughs> so, so wait, it's, it's a hundred. It's a hundred cm's long and a hundred and ten millimeters wide. Correct. Okay. Perfect. <laughs> What's it called? It's the Wizard Point Five. <laughs> perfect. And and sorry, are there other? Are there going to be other production snowblades? So we have the Wizard Point Five. Anything uh, you else? Know, that, that's that's the only production one. I have like a I call it a directional park blade that I make. For some athletes, uh, you that one won't, probably won't see production, but maybe if we're lucky and we'll see a maybe like ski blade mono ski for the following year. Damn. Okay. Yeah. Wow. That one, just... that one goes into prototyping soon, and it's been picked up by several of our wholesale partners. So not only will we be selling it direct, but it will be available in a few limited locations wow. and online yeah. from not just us. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it comes back to, you know, Peter and myself don't take ourselves that seriously, but we take what we do very seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, so although snowblading is is fun, we're still making a great snowblade and a quality product. Yeah. And we've been wanting a production snowblade for years. It just wasn't the time. It felt like that could distract from from the branding initially and what we're known for. But it's time to spread our wings. Time to spread and, our wings. Uh, we have yeah snowblades coming out. Wow. 
All right. Well, we'll start. We'll start uh, opening up this new wing of blister. Uh, <laughs> yeah, because we weren't busy enough. So that's awesome. Uh, we'll uh, <laughs> we'll start working on that. But um, well, guys, uh, this has been really fun, and and I really appreciate uh, the conversation and the information, and and just hearing about Sego, where you've been, and and what you're doing these days. Um, so uh, I wish you guys well with all of it, and. Um, Especially as you start on this, you know, full run of Snowblade production, uh, you know, just uh, don't don't screw it up. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> All right, take care, guys. That's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. Thanks to Tim and Peter for the conversation, and you can go to SegoSkis.com to check out their skis, the Sego School Bus, and more. Thanks also to our strikingly handsome audio engineer, Justin Bob. And if you haven't already, subscribe to the Blister Podcast in iTunes slash Apple Podcasts or on Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite Android player so you are immediately notified each time a new episode drops. And we'll also be posting later this week a Gear 30 podcast about ski gear and backcountry skiing in Alaska. So you might also want to subscribe to our Gear 30 podcast so you don't miss that episode when it drops. Thanks, everybody, and we will talk to you again real soon.